Welcome to the Property CEO Podcast, your inside track to the world of property with your hosts, Ian Child and Richie Clapson. Hello and welcome to the Property CEO Podcast. My name's Ian Charles and I'm here with Richie Clapson. Hello everybody. And in this episode, we're talking about how you can manage the risks associated with, with property development, aren't we, Richie? I mean, that's right. It's an area that we get a lot of questions about, so I think a lot of people will be interested to hear how you can deal with the whole issue of risk. Fantastic. And uh, how has your week been? Oh, quite a good week uh, out and about, haven't we, again? And uh, actually got to see a different side of you this week. <laughs> Did you? When well, was this? Well, we were presenting at a, another property networking meeting, as we seem to do quite regularly in Berkshire, and you'd kindly offer to drive us both in your new pride and joy, hadn't you? Okay, I, I think I can see where this is going. Is this this is going to be another one of your completely unwarranted parking attacks, isn't it? No, no, not at all. I'm just going to relay the facts. That's all I'm going to do. I'll let the audience make up their minds as to what sort of parker you actually are. Great. Thanks for that. Okay, so we get to the event. Shall I just, just lay this out? We get to the event, and to be fair... I mean, I'll, I'll grant you this, the car park's a bit tight. It's one of those underground concrete jobbies with pillars all over the place. It was. So you drive, um, and this is a fact, you drive aimlessly uh, around for about 30 minutes, <laughs> backwards and forwards, trying to find a space big enough to park in. Yes, of course I did, yes. And that's, that's not, a, you know, no exaggeration at all. So, so eventually you spot a space about two light years away <laughs> from where we need to be, right over the other side of the damn car park. <laughs> And and I'm thinking, you know, I would probably definitely reverse into that space if it were me. But I decided to keep quiet as, you know, you were getting a little bit stressed out by that stage. Right. And, uh, you know, you decided to go in forwards. Yeah, it's an old, an old Indian trick, actually. When I've got half a ton of Indian presenting trick. equipment in the boot that we need to get out, I like to park so that... <laughs> You know, bizarrely, so that I can actually access the boot after I've parked. You know, you should give it a go sometime. Okay. Anyway, we did the presentation and all went uh, really well until we got into the car and left. And then, uh, well, it all went a bit wrong, didn't it? Well, I'll be honest, my, my memory possibly isn't quite as good as, uh, as yours, so I don't really remember. Uh... Yeah, yeah, I think you probably do. So, uh, as you were reversing out, fact, by the way, here, as you were reversing out, you clipped your wing mirror on a concrete post. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's funny. And, 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 uh, and then there was this turret of abuse where, I mean, I've never heard it like it. I tell you, I've been, uh, I've been working around building sites for most of my life, and I picked up a couple of choice words from you that, that <laughs> you night. Do I exactly can tell you do exaggerate, don't you? I may have made a very mild observation about the position of the, uh, of the concrete post relative to the parking space. Yeah, okay. I remember there were quite a few Fs in it, <laughs> if, I, if I'm correct. Although credit where credit's due. Uh, you were unusually quite sensitive i thought you were going to start kind of taking the michael but uh, but you didn't say a word well yeah to be fair i was <laughs> i was in a complete hysterics underneath it's a bit like the duck on the water all was calm on the top but underneath it i was in hysterics and, and after you dropped me off oh i mean it's funny it took me a couple of good hours to stop laughing but i managed to keep it together during the journey back just for your benefit that's that's really good of you. Um, thanks, I really appreciate well, it. Well, when I got home, I told I told my wife. But to be fair, we both had a good laugh between <laughs> us over the whole thing as well. <laughs> Great, yeah, I'm so glad. Don't mention it, but you know, 
Uh, I gather you've uh, you've got some ha- some history in sort of wing mirror department and damaging wing mirrors, haven't you? Do I? Am I, am I right? Well, th- you, you told me once about an embarrassing moment in uh, in your Jaguar. Oh. Of course, only you would have a, a Jaguar. A Jaguar, yes. Um, well, that was quite funny. It was actually back in my uh, my corporate days. I was I was working back for in this, the dark days. The dark days. <laughs> I was working for um, American insurance company. I had the uh, the company's global CEO fly over from the states to. Uh, I think he was, he was just joining me at uh, a client meeting that we had. And on my way into the office that morning, some idiot was driving too far over on my side of the road. It wasn't you then, wasn't me? No, obviously. I'm glad you spotted that. Some idiot. Um, Could and, have been uh, you. He, he clipped my mirror. So we're probably both doing about 30 miles an hour. So uh, it was yeah, quite, a, quite an impact. Um, and luckily, the, the mirror didn't didn't break, but it, it kind of cracked the housing around the outside. Yeah. Anyway, the uh, the CEO was kind of big into his cars, and we had this, this kind of running joke about Jaguars. He had a, a kind of a fleet of cars that included things like Ferraris and Porsches, and I had this, this Jaguar. And he thought, uh, Jaguars really unreliable, and and I told him they were you know, exactly the opposite. They're ultra him, reliable. You told him what? Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, he was American, so we were having our usual banter about his. his I think he just got a new Porsche, and I, and I was it, the, the banter was about how he was saying that his Porsche was more reliable than my Jaguar. Uh, as we were driving along to this this client me- meeting, then all of a sudden I kind of stopped at some traffic lights. And the wing mirror housing just fell off into the road. <laughs> it just what? It just fell, literally fell off. I was I was sitting there, start, start, just at the lights, having a chatting, and all of a sudden, um, just yeah, decided to just part company. Off. So without a word, I get out of the car, and um, and he's thinking, what's happening now? He's just left me at the lights, um, and I, I sort of pick it up, uh, get back in the car, and just hand him this. <laughs> wing mirror unit <laughs> and then the lights went green and i drove off what did he say we thought it was hysterical i mean he asked you know whether jaguar supplied netting as an option that you could kind of retrofit around the car to catch bits <laughs> as they fell off <laughs> then of course he proceeded to tell everybody the story when he got back home so for months afterwards whenever i had a call with colleagues in the u.s i always get asked how the Jaguar was doing, and whether there was any of it left. Excellent. So, so you and wing mirrors don't really get on. That's uh, that's what we're saying here, isn't it? Well, I suppose, yeah. Historically, they don't seem to want to stay attached to my cars. No. But do you know what makes it really funny? What makes it really funny? I suspect the answer is no. I don't really know what makes it even remotely funny. Well, it's the fact that your new car, the car that you uh, you bang the mirror on in the car park with all the concrete columns, has just got on it about every conceivable parking gadget ever <laughs> invented. You know, it hasn't just got parking sensors. Oh, no, 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 no. Most of us would just do with parking sensors. Oh, it's got cameras that look left and right. It's got alarms that go off when you get near anything. And it's got that whizzy helicopter 360-degree view thing that you can look down on your car when you park it. I mean, it's fantastic. But you still managed to drive it into a concrete post. (laughs) I didn't drive it into a concrete post. I simply clipped it with my mirror. And that's completely different, is it? Actually, do you want to know why you did it? No. Well, let me tell you anyway. It's because your whizzy 360-degree helicopter view parking gizmo aid, uh, it doesn't work underground car parks, does it? It doesn't work in them. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. Did you know that how the 360-degree thing, the helicopter thing works, all the software works? Yeah, well, actually, I'm a, I'm a part-time computer programmer, obviously, <laughs> so uh, no, of course I don't know how it actually works. Right, well, let me tell you. Well, as soon as you put the car into reverse, an electronic signal is sent to the car's central processing unit. 
Right. Okay. And then two actuators engage with the remote parking flange, which is situated right in the bowels of the engine. A parking flange, really? Yeah, absolutely. And then a large pole with a camera on it shoots up from the roof. Only it can't shoot up when you're in an underground car park. Right, so as usual, uh, your lips are moving, which is a, a classic sign. Once again, you're talking complete rubbish. Oh, no, it's, it's all true. You don't get to see the pole because you're always in the car when it's up. Right. You see, if you think about it, as soon as you take the car out of reverse and get out... Right. The pole retracts and goes back into the roof. So you've never, ever seen it. It's a very clever system. Yeah, that's also complete tosh, isn't it? But I think I know what the solution is for you. Uh, What? I think you need to get your 360-degree camera system upgraded. Okay, in uh, in what way? Well, for people, uh, you know, that are spatially unaware, as you are, uh, 360 degrees just isn't enough. You need to get a 720-degree camera. (laughs) That should get a chance of, you know, stop you driving into anything else. What you reckon it half the chances? Well, why not, Pete? Why not? Anyway, it's not going to be a problem anymore, is it? Why? Why? Well, now you've got yet another new car, we can, uh, we can go everywhere in yours. That way, you don't need to worry about me parking ever again. This is true. What, what do you think of it? Do you like it? It's, it's okay if you like that sort of thing. What do you mean? It's okay. She's a beauty. 0 to 60, uh, under four seconds, way quicker than that old bus thing that you've got with a damaged mirror. Well, I guess uh, four seconds, you say. Uh, I'll probably minimise the chances, at least, of anyone uh, seeing you in it as, uh, as you drive by. Uh, uh, and why wouldn't I want to be seen in my uh, new car? Well, it's, just got, it's, it's got some... How can I put it? It's got some associations that might not be aligned with the image that you're trying to project. And what sort of associations are they then? Um, well, uh, professional associations. What, like Freemasons? What? No. <laughs> what then? Hairdressing. Seriously? Yeah, basically, you've gone out and bought a hairdresser's car. No way. No way is it a hairdresser's car. Okay, do you remember that recent, um, we did the Elite Mentorship Group meeting recently, and I asked the group to answer true or false. And the subject was five things I never knew about Richie Clapson. How could I forget? I was traumatised by the whole experience. It was totally unfair. And the first fact that I gave the group was that Richie drives a hairdresser's car, true or false. And do you remember what they answered? Yeah, they said no. (laughs) The whole group (laughs) voted yes to a man and a woman. Yeah. Well, what do they know about cars? That's what I'm asking And then when we we were on site last week and you got wolf whistled when you got out of the car? Yeah, I thought that was for those two girls on the other side of the street. So to be fair, I, I mean, I do get that a lot. No, no, it was our electrician. Do you know? Do you know? I've never, I, I, I've never looked at him like that. I mean, you know, <laughs> shocking, really. And then to cap it all, do you remember what the architect said as um, when we were leaving that meeting? No. What, what did he say? He said. Not too much off the top, please. No, 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 no. He was talking about reducing the roof line on the property. No, it was hairdressing. It was a hairdressing reference. Um, I, you, you're just in denial. You're, you're talking rubbish Then there was, I'll tell you what, there was that bloke in the restaurant yesterday when we were out who pointed at you and said, is it a barber? Yeah, that was about my jacket I was wearing. No, you can think what you want to think. I'm just <laughs> telling you that you're the only person I know. jacket. I'm the only person that, that, that I know that doesn't look at your car and instantly think of it, of... of Head and shoulders. I don't know what you're talking about. That's probably because you have, you've got less use for head and shoulders than most people. <laughs> well, thanks for that. Thanks for that. 
Anyway, Vidal, uh, let's agree <laughs> to disagree on that one. Instead, why don't we talk about how we can manage risk when it comes to uh, to property development? Um, I, I guess, after all, pretty many people look at property development and think, you know, potentially a bit of a, a risky business, isn't it? Yeah, and of course, you know, they're right. But it's how you approach risk uh, is the key issue. That's That's the important thing. And I know that you've come here today armed with seven top tips that are going to help us all mitigate risk when it comes to uh, to development, haven't you? So um, should we kick off? What's, the, uh, what's get, the first one? Let's get serious and forget my calm and talk about uh, mitigating risk. Yeah, okay, seven, seven points then to mitigate risk. Firstly, uh, revolt around the type of schemes you go for. So what I would say... And we're talking about people getting into maybe development for the first time or their first few projects. So the first thing I would say is go for schemes with planning permission in place or permitted development rights. You know, at the end of the day, why wouldn't you if you can? You know, these options exist. So with with uh, you know without planning, you know, you're letting others take control, and that's a real problem. I've seen it time and time again. People get into projects. And they're, 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 you know, they're at the behest of the planners of what the planners want. Now, planners are supposed to work within certain rules and guidelines and planning statements they make. It doesn't always quite go like that. And sometimes it can be a bit emotive. If a planner doesn't want something, it can be quite difficult. Or they can constantly ask for additional reports or information. And, of course, the whole thing slows you down. So at the end of the day, you know, if you're entering into, into a, 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 a development where you've got to get planning, it's open-ended. And, of course, you might not get the funding if you don't have the planning in the first place. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, you'll, you'll probably get the funding to purchase the property, but you may get it at a lesser percentage. So whereas if you've got full planning permission or permitted development rights, they might lend you 70%. They might chip that back to 60% because they think, well, hang on a minute, you're buying this on a on a speculative basis. They're probably only going to value it on the true bricks and mortar value of that property at the time, not on any uplift value because you don't have the planning. Of course. And, and, and they, of course, they won't lend you the money to develop it until you have got the planning so this is this sort of time scale issue that you can just be ticking away and it's this point i make about being open-ended you know you don't want to go into something which which you could be sat here in a year's time still trying to get planning uh you know my, my first point is if you don't have to go for a scheme that requires planning don't so that's uh number one what's number two i think number two's got to be around the numbers um because this is uh this is really important. Mm. You know, numbers are so so important. They're crucial in in any development that you're looking at. So you know, they break down in, into into areas. Uh, you know, what are you what are you paying for the property? What are what are you actually going to to do to it? So how much is it going to cost to rebuild and and, and develop it? And then what are you going to sell it for? So there's three basic numbers that you can look at in property that you have to get right. So in a lot of ways. It's simple. You know, there's just three numbers. What are you paying for it? What am I going to do to it? And, uh, you know, what am I going to sell it for? Now, the the easy one in terms of what are you going to pay for it? Uh, well, that's going to be determined. You know, you're going to do some deal analysis, but you're going to ultimately pitch a number. Once you pay for it, that's it. It's fixed. You've done that. You've done the number. There might be a little bit of a flexibility on solicitor's cost or something, but ultimately you can determine that quite easy. The, uh, the, the sale price is... is Perhaps not too bad, but of course it's quite variable because the market could change. This is why often we tell people to to keep a project down in terms of time scale. So 
you know, but even predicting 12 months ahead, what's the property market going to be doing? You're, you're hedging your bets a little bit. So there's a little bit of, uh, you know, a, a variance on that. The real difficult one where most people struggle, the most difficult is, is what's it going to cost? Yes. Either to build brand new or to refurb. And they all have a lot of a lot of variables in it. So you, you you know, you've got the building works cost, you've got the professionals fees, interest, sale costs, third party costs, lots of stuff going in there. So we just try and look at these costs first of all, because this is an area where you've got to work hard on. This is normally your your biggest cost in there. You know, your biggest your biggest variance of numbers is your build cost. So how do you try and get that together? Well, normally as developers, we work on a, a pounds per square meter basis. Some people work on a pounds per square foot. All the state agents work on that. Um, some builders do. So you've got to you've got to get some budget numbers, and there are a lot of sort of budget numbers out there in your area. They, they'll be slightly different, perhaps from another area across the country. But uh, you need some budget pounds per square meters that it costs either to build brand new if that's what you're doing, or to refurbish various types of buildings. So whether we're talking about a commercial office space or an industrial building, you can come up with some broad numbers for those areas. Now, how do you get those numbers? Well, you, you can either do it from your professional team, you know, your builders, your, your quantity surveyors. This is what quantity surveyors will often do. They'll often bring this information to you. So you can get some budget figures or talk to some fellow developers. What, have you, what does it cost you to do that? So you can build up a bit of a historic sort of portfolio of numbers. But ultimately, these are just guides. And, and when you're getting into this, you need a lot more accuracy. So you know, we're talking about quite big numbers, six-figure numbers, even on the smallest of projects, that you do not want to get wrong. So your build costs are really important to get right. So how do we mitigate risk in build costs? Well, there's a number of routes you can go down, which is really good. Most people are pleased to know that actually you can mitigate it by going out and doing a number of these things. So firstly, you might want to talk to a cost consultant, uh, a quantity surveyor or cost consultants, they're often called, and they have a, a wealth of information. This is what they do. You know, they've got a lot of historic information. They probably have current information on the tenders that's just come back, maybe for other clients, and they're pretty much better work out individually what your project should cost. There are standard rates and measures for all building materials and all building types and processes, so they can go back to uh, you know to technical information and they can put together a cost plan for you. You're gonna have to pay them. You know, but uh, the, the the minimal fee you've ultimately got to pay them for you know mitigating your risk is often worthwhile. So you can go to a cost consultant and they can give you a budget price for your project. So that's one way of doing that. There is a cost to that, as we say, because you're paying for people's time. Um, and normally it's sort of local people. It's, it's, it's not going to be cheap, cheap, but it's it's going to be a good service and someone you can relate to. Cheap, cheap? Not going to be cheap, cheap. No, no, it's, it's, that's, it's not for sure. Um, there's going to be other options out there with estimating software or estimating services. So you can buy some software yourself. You can buy estimating software. I trouble with some of that things. Unless you do it regularly, it's very complex. Mm-hmm. And uh, we actually had um, a junior estimator and he used to do all our stuff. <laughs> But even he took quite a while to get up to speed on the software. So the probably the better route of those two is some estimating services. So these are a bit like your cost consultants, but th- th- they turn over a lot of projects. So they're just process driven. Um, and actually, for a few hundred pound compared to maybe you know quite a bit more for a, a local professional, you can get a whole project costed up. The trouble is, the slight downside is you're not having any interaction with these people to any great extent. You just send them a package of information and they'll cost it up. Now, the problem is you need a bit of information to do that. So you, you've probably got to spend a little bit of money on your architect to come up with some basic layouts or maybe a basic specification for the project. So we're going to put 
you know, basic white gloss kitchens in. We're going to have white bathroom furniture with white tile or whatever it is you're going to have. And uh, you might be able to talk to your structural engineer and uh, your architect to get a bit of a feel for the specification of the refurb. Yes, it's new windows, UPVC or timber or whatever it has to be. So you can pull some information together, go out to an estimating service and they can give you some some budget prices. Now, all these things are going to cost you a little bit of money, a little bit of expenditure. But again, we're talking about mitigating risk. So if your numbers are quite tight, mm. you know, spending a little bit of money now is definitely worth doing to, to, you know, to, for, for the future in terms of going out there, of getting it right. I think you, there's a, there was a couple of things that come to mind as you were saying that that I think are, are really important. One is to make sure that you're using a, a, a model to do this so that you're not missing anything. You don't do each project in isolation and start with a blank sheet of paper. You actually make sure that you've, you've got a list of all the boxes you need to complete, all the costs that are going to come into a project before you start. And I think the second thing is that you don't need to start in incurring costs straight away what you have is your broad brush figures the kind of ballpark figures that you've you've kind of checked for reasonableness but you haven't necessarily firmed them up for this particular deal and that goes into your your deal analyzer and allows you to make a kind of initial quick decision as to whether it's something that might be worth uh, working on further yeah it's, it's it's like gateways you're going through different gateways certainly you're not going to go out and, and employ a cost consultant straight away as you say you work on these square meters prices which you're going to have to build up and gather that intelligence from and and you're absolutely right in if you then think well this is worth pursuing a little bit further but i need to make sure my my project build cost is right you now maybe spend yeah. a little bit of money maybe then you spend a little bit more um it's all about edging towards that final position so you don't just go out and spend it straight away but you, you spend it on a deal which you think is going to work okay one of the problems with all of those processes generally they work on uh the sort of historic information they, they're sort of looking backwards on previous information of what contractors would tender for a project so one of the real fail-safe routes is actually go out to tender or maybe consider like a design and build contract this is where a contractor will come on and bring the whole team in for you now you've got to build a relationship we know this business is all about relationships you can't go out to contractors every five minutes and ask them to tender projects if you've got no intention of doing them but if you've gone through these gateways there is a point and certainly we would do it where uh, we would go out to tender even on some basic information. So there was a project recently up in Wiltshire where we called a couple of contractors out and we've asked them, and they're currently actually pricing at the moment, we said, can you give us some budget prices for refurbishing this and turning it into 17 flats? Yeah. More than happy to do that for us. You know, one of them's got a project on with us at the moment, so he's happy to do it. The other one wants to get some work with us. So they're, they're actually estimating that, I think, this week. So they're going to come back with some prices. So you can see there's various gateways and stages that we can build up. Pounds per square metre, then we might be able to go to, to maybe some estimating services. Maybe we can employ a professional cost consultant. Maybe we go out to tender. All these are opportunities. You can either layer them up or you can do them individually to, to build I, up intelligence on that build cost. And I guess with, with all of your professional fees and your third-party costs, you can also you can make assumptions about those, but ultimately you can go and get, um, get quotes, can't you? When it comes to selling you know, the sale values that you put in. So that was the, the third number that you mentioned. Yes. Um, that, that, again, you can do some broad brush stuff, but ultimately you need to, you know, it's, it's such a critical number because it determines ultimately what you can offer for the property, doesn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, gather lots of information uh, and speak to lots of agents. Don't just speak to one agent uh, because there's two elements here. You know, there's sellability and there's also the sale price. So speak to lots of agents and gather lots of information. The biggest mistake that I see people make and I think is is an easy one to avoid is people go, oh, it's a one-bed flat or it's a two-bed flat or it's a three-bed house. They sell for this price. You've got to bring it back to pounds per square foot or pounds per square meter because that's the selling price. And all estate agents generally work on pounds per square foot. And they'll tell you, yeah, we go for £360 a square foot in this area for a one-bed house or a one-bed flat or whatever it might be. Um, Because you may be building flats or houses for a different area size than what you're actually looking at. And that's a big mistake I see a lot of new people make into this market. So bring all those prices back. Just put a simple spreadsheet together. Look at all the selling prices that the agents give you. Take them back to pounds per square foot or per meter, depending on the size of the house. A lot of agents will tell you that anyway. And that will give you a bit of a true guide of what you're going to get in your area. And maybe take the average. So look at maybe, you know, 20 or 30 properties of similar uh, you know, arrangement to yours that has sold over the last six months and bring them back to pounds per square meter. Add on top of that the agent's information to see whether the market's going up or down. So yeah, those three costs, you can do quite a bit of work on to pull those together in terms of your numbers. Fantastic. So numbers is number two. Uh, what's number three? Three is, is, uh, is can actually consider carrying out a strip-out contract before tendering the main project. And a strip-out contract? A strip-out contract. Sounds good. This will apply to refurbishment projects. Okay, so not new build, but if you've got a refurbishment, you're refurbishing an office or an old industrial, Industrial building and there's a lot of cladding and walls and, and suspended ceilings and floors you don't know what's lurking behind that so if you don't pull all that apart a contractor will price risk and that's uh, that's where you know you're going to actually then get additional cost into your project because if you're asking for a fixed price off of that contractor they're going to price in the risk alternatively they won't price in the risk and they might put down what's called a provisional sum because they can't see behind it so they might say well we're going to estimate that there's only £5,000 worth of strip out or we've made the assumption there's no asbestos or there's no rotten timbers. And of course, then when you take down the ceilings there is, then you've got additional cost. Yeah. So then then your, your your risk has gone, you know, it's, it's gone quite high. So you can only do this if you own a project. So, but, but this is a sort of an early stage. So quite often, and we do this quite regularly, we've just done it with, with a project down in Hampshire where we actually went in uh, whilst we were going out to tender for the main project, we bought in another contractor and he stripped out all the ceilings, all the floors. And we identified quite a few rotten timbers and bits and pieces. So they're now all in the price. Yeah. So we know what price we're working for. So a strip out contract, I often call it like a two-stage process, is a really good thing to do to consider mitigating your risk in your overall number. Makes a lot of sense. Okay. Okay, um, number four. Uh, well, I'm going to come back to numbers, um, which sort of all revolves around the same thing. But this is really, really simple in terms of mitigating your risk. Do not, do not massage your numbers to fit. It's tempting, uh, but a big mistake a lot of people make. So you've covered strip outs and massages in this. Uh, yeah, project. absolutely. Yeah, it's all in there, isn't it? I think what happens, particularly with uh, newer developers, is they get quite attached uh, emotionally attached you get to excited. a project. Yeah, excited yeah. about what making it work. And of course, because some of the assumptions that you put in are unknowns, you know, the, particularly when it comes to things like contingency. And and so if you're just a few percent out and you're thinking, well, if only perhaps this was dialed down a bit and that was dialed down a bit, I could actually make these numbers work. That's a really slippery slope, isn't it? It is. And what you do is, is people do it subtly and they don't realise they've done it. They've mm. just tweaked a little bit here, a little bit there. But overall, the tweak is quite massive. So, uh, so no massaging. 
Uh, what's number What's number five? Uh, again, you're not going to be surprised. It comes back to figures. A lot of stuff comes back to figures, but a different side of figures. And this is about how you work your dill analyzer. And you want to work it, so you need a dill analyzer, as, we've, as we often talk about, and work it from a cost perspective first, then review sale values and add them in. Now, why do I say that? Well, what I see a lot of people do is they look at a site... Um, we we had it the week, I think, uh, one of our elite mentorship days, and someone said, we looked at the site, and someone said, oh, I found some sell values in the area. No, don't do that first. And the reason is it, it, it's very tempting subconsciously to actually then go through your cost numbers and adjust them to fit. Because what you've done is you put the third number in, mm. and a good deal analyzer is throwing out your percentage all the time. So what you do is you go through and you start putting your costs in, and you're constantly looking subconsciously at the profit figure at the bottom. Yeah. And as soon as it starts to go the wrong way, you're, I, I think I've, I've done it. And you stop. Yeah. Whereas actually, if you go the other way around, and I'll always say this, right, and I do this myself because I'm, I can't help myself subconsciously because you want a deal to work. You've seen something. You've worked hard to try and find an opportunity. Yeah. You know, I start at the top. I go through all the costs. I sort of think of all the worst case scenarios. I add them all in. Then I come to my sale values. Then if I've got a problem, then I go back and start analysing and delving deeper yeah. and going through other gateways on all the individual costs. So no. work from a cost perspective, first of all. Makes a lot of sense. So um, I'm, I'm loath to ask, number six, is that going to be about numbers as well? Because actually when I, when I put this together, I thought there was going to be seven tips, but actually they all seem to be numbers. <laughs> number six. Number six. Nothing to do with numbers. Excellent. Very simple. Have two exits on everything you do. Okay. Okay. Um, don't just set with, I'm going to build this to rent it. I'm going to, I'm going to hold and rent it. Great strategy if that's what you want to do. But what if the market changes? Yeah. You know, the world changes. We know that the world changes constantly. I mean, you ask a lot of landlords recently, what's happening to buy-to-let portfolios and the pressure on those for loss of taxation and so on. So if you're going down the road and you've developed a product or you're designing a development only on the basis that you can refinance and rent it, and the rental market drops out, what do you do? I mean, there's a huge amount of people in uh, Southampton as a town who had a huge amount of student properties. And then what did the university do? They bought a load of land and built huge blocks. Yeah. And now all these properties are empty. So if you've only got a property which is suitable for student lets, you're in a bit of trouble. So you have to have two exits. Uh, so if, it, if it's going to be uh, you know refinance and hold or sell, those are two key ones you can have to often have. Or maybe you've got to do something different with it. But to, you know, definitely have a look at that. And again, maybe we come back, your position may change. So you might think you want to hold it, but in fact, you need some, you need some liquid capital to do something else. Fantastic. Okay, uh, number seven. Uh, Last but not least. And you, you're not going to mention numbers, are you? There's a little bit of a number in there. It's just to do with percentages. Okay. So right. is it numbers, isn't it? Do not proceed unless you've got minimum of 20% profit. Okay. Fact. That's it, right? If you ideally want 20 to 25%, to allow for a bit of movement in projects going down. But at 20%, apart from the fact you probably won't get funding if it's below 20%. Of course. Um, if the market drops and your costs go up, at least you're going to come out and at the very worst, break even. At the very worst. And that's your absolute worst scenario. We do not want to lose money as developers. Chances are you'll still make some profit. But 20% is an absolute, absolute must. Don't look at the number. And there was there was someone the other day who was looking at a scheme and asked for my advice, and I said, no, it doesn't work. It, it was about 12% profit. And he said, yes, but it's, it's 100,000. 
No, that's irrelevant, okay? Now, a lot of people think, well, how's 100,000 irrelevant? It's irrelevant because things do change. Hidden costs can come in, the market can change. 12% is not enough margin. Forget it's 100,000, it's the percentage. You must have a minimum of 20% profit on the sale value, on the gross development value to proceed. Fantastic. Richie, excellent. Thank you very much. Um, now, I know you shouldn't have favourites, but if I were pushed um, to choose from your seven top tips, I would say my favourite three, uh, first of all, yeah, stick with the planning, um, something that's got planning permission or that's got permitted development, because then you, you've got that control. Yeah. Uh, number two for me is a mistake I, th- I see a lot of people make, is is not firming up on the construction costs. So they, they put some ballpark numbers in that have served them well in their deal analyzer. Perhaps that was the number that came out of the machine last time they did a project, or that's a number that they've been told. But then when they get to the crucial point and the deal's still looking good and they want to make an offer, uh, they forget or they, they just gloss over the, the fact that they then need to try and firm that up. So make sure that before you commit to a project that your numbers are as firm as they, uh, they can yeah. be. And then I think that last point is so valuable. The, um, you know, you've got to start with a 20% plus profit margin in your deal analyzer. And then hopefully the, you know, the worst that can happen, hopefully, is that you know, you've got a good education behind you and you're not going to be making any serious losses because you've got that 20% buffer. As you say, the, the finance um, providers are likely to insist on that anyway. Um, but ultimately what you're trying to do in every project that you go into is make sure that uh, whatever happens, because we, we never know what's going to happen, no. but that, that you can get out the other end of it in a situation where you don't lose money. Um, it's not that's that's unfortunate. You can never guarantee that, but you want to try and make as, take as many steps as you can to prevent that. It's about it's, mitigating the risk. Exactly. If exactly. you had to do one thing and one thing only, stick at twenty percent. Fantastic, Richie. Thanks so much for that. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for in this episode. Hopefully, you'll be able to find the time to join us uh, next time when we'll be giving you the inside track from yet another part of the property world. In the meantime, please do feel free to check out our other episodes. And of course, you can visit our website, which is at propertyceo.co.uk. But until next time, it's goodbye from us both. Goodbye.